Okay, in the community, I think that became not, not famous, but a, pair, a lot of guys said, I can't believe you said that. But it was like a gay secret that Astro Street was kind of like, you know, it was very cruisy. Yes, yes. It was yes. very cruisy. Yes. And I just threw that line in to see if, where are the guys you're listening? And they were. We're kicking off B-Scene Season 2, Michael, with quite the character, Bobby Rivers. This is a man that began his broadcast career in Milwaukee. He came to Milwaukee from South Central LA, came here for school, attended Marquette University, and got a degree in journalism and broadcast, and uh, went on to have an incredible career after leaving Milwaukee. And I first learned about this, Michael, through your research with the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. So the article that I did for the History Project, which was appearing in this month's Our Lives magazine, really focused on the full span of his career and understanding not only who he was during, you know, my childhood years in Milwaukee, but who he was before and after that as well. Mm -hmm. And it's really quite a compelling story. I really didn't understand exactly how much impact he was having in representation in the media. And it really was interesting to hear from him firsthand what that representation meant to him when he was growing up. Yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot to learn from his story. We kicked off last year, last season with The Black Knight and comparing to where Bobby was in the late 70s and early to mid 80s, times were changing a little bit. He was able to be a, a bit more himself, but not fully out. And it was kind of this weird in-between time where he was, you know, a black man, a broadcaster, gay, out to his to his coworkers and kind of out on the air, but it was, you know, still kind of a precarious time. Totally agree. I don't know that anyone working in the media today could understand the pressures of the 70s and 80s, where if you were given an opportunity like this, and if you were someone of a protected class, that this was really a one shot. I mean, this was not something that would come to you multiple times in your career. This might be the one chance you have to make it into that industry. But with that came these behavioral expectations. And, you know, the balance that these people had to strike as pioneers in broadcasting is just commendable. I mean, he worked at his first radio job in Milwaukee was at a place called WQFM, which was a legendary Milwaukee rock station. In fact, there's still kind of a fan page, an active fan page and stream for it online. But this was a really high profile gig in Milwaukee to work at QFM and he started his career there. He also later went on to work at Channel 12. So I just personally feel like, you know, he really blazed a lot of trails just, you know, just as a broadcaster in Milwaukee. And, you know, when he's when he talks about balancing family responsibilities and dealing with um, not having the best relationship with his parents, I feel like a lot of people in the community can really relate to that. And um, the struggles of just trying to like balance, balance family, balance his public image, support his family, and ultimately try to find that acceptance with his parents that it was, it was a hard fought battle. And as you'll hear later in the episode, he did find that closure, but it was all too late. Hello. Hello, Mr. Rivers. This is Nate Immig from Milwaukee. Nate, how are you, man? Thank you for calling. Why don't we get into the story here from Bobby Rivers, beginning his career in Milwaukee, a fresh college grad right out of Marquette University. QFM was my first professional full-time broadcast job. When I was at WQFM, the way that I got in there was pretty unconventional, but fun. And when I started, I was part-time. 
And one of the things that I really liked about QFM at that time, I started out as a listener. QFM was within walking distance of my apartment. And I went, I think I could fit in there, not as a DJ, but, you know, maybe reading news. I would go into QFM and they'll fill out an application and then hand it to the woman who, they didn't call it HR at the time, but she was in personnel. So even if she didn't have you for an interview at that time, she always wanted to shake a hand and make eye contact with whoever was applying for a job. And, you know, job applications at that time were like, what are your hobbies? And, you know, maybe write some bullshit answer. So one time I put down hobbies, origami, and performing frontal lobotomies. What? I did. Because I just wanted to see, is she going to pay attention to this? And so I heard her go, frontal lobotomies. And she, come on, I went, hi. And she called me into the office. Well, the guy who was the program director, she told him that, and he thought it was really funny. So he started contacting me, and he said, I want to bring you on. And just like that, with the promise of frontal lobotomies, Bobby Rivers was in. It was the late 1970s, the radio biz was hot, and it wouldn't be long before he got his first tool of the trade. We had one of the morning teams, it was John Grievous and Mary Curran. And she was just one of the coolest women I had ever met in my life. She was like this really hip, diversity-embracing feminist. And she said, here's what I want you to do. She said, just to get you up and started, she said, well, John and I do the morning show. If we have a, a tape feature, like a cassette we can hit, that runs about, you know, 30 to 45 to a minute, that gives us a break. And it adds to the newscast. So I wanted to give you an assignment. And if there are celebrities in town, you know, just get some sound, a couple of sound bites. And that'll get you, you know, that'll ease you into the job. Ease into the job, they said. Just get some sound bites from a celebrity. No big deal, right? Well, it turned out Bobby's first assignment was to meet an icon right here in Milwaukee. Betty Davis, who what? at that time was in... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> We're she both flabbergasted here a little bit. <laughs> Betty Davis was in town to promote the movie Death on the Nile. So she held a little press conference at the Performing Arts Center. You know, the press was there. And, you know, and this is, you know, of course, you know, this is in the 70s. So she's older and very much the legend. You know, I got it. I was petrified. She just gave off. I. I'm a legend, and you are speaking. But she delivered. She gave me what I wanted while I was trying to get sound bites from her. She had a little paper plate and a pile of cheese cubes, and she would not stop popping these cheese cubes into her mouth as she <laughs> talked. And I went, you know, and I can't say, honey, could you, could you stop with the cheese? You know, because I went, it's Betty Davis. And as she went to answer one of my questions, a whole cheese cube popped out of her mouth and landed smack dab in her lap. And <laughs> wow. she just took a second and I thought, well, what do I do? Well, be a gentleman. And I went to reach for the cube and she went, I'll get it. And she 
ate the cheese and then gave me the answer. She terrified me, but she gave me what I needed. It was clear right away to Bobby that this is where he belonged, that he found his calling. A kid out of college, landing interviews with Betty Davis and working for the hottest rock station in town. And that tape recorder, it got a lot of use. Imagine just fast forwarding through the tape and, and hearing this lineup at the time. This is Betty Davis, Paul Lind. Oh, Honey Paul Bruce, Lind. Who was the, Paul Lind, who was hysterically funny. Honey Bruce, who was the wife of Lenny Bruce. Carol Channing gave me an, a half-hour interview in her dressing room. Backstage in Milwaukee, a one-on-one with Carol Channing. All this at his first gig at QFM. And as time went on, he would move beyond the morning show doing entertainment bits and eventually got his own time slot doing mornings with Paul Kelly. There isn't much of a record that exists from those days, but I did find one YouTube clip of that radio show. We call it an air check in the radio biz where the music is cut out and you only hear the talk breaks. And I couldn't help but play a bit of that air check for Bobby. Be okay. I, I don't know if I would be. I don't know if I would be okay hearing something from my early radio career. Oh, I can take it. <laughs> you can take it. I got it right here. QFM Milwaukee. It's exactly. Let me know if this sparks morning, any memories. Can you hear it? Good morning, boys and girls. Good morning, everyone. This is Captain Kangaroo. Good morning, Does open sparking any memories for you? Who's this? Six six oh nine here at Milwaukee's album station, ninety-three QFM. Good morning, I'm Paul Kelly. This is Bobby, and it's thirty-four degrees outside right now. Where it's gonna be cloudy later on today with a high near fifty. You awake now? No. Not yet? Uh-uh. Oh, poor baby. And TV six is taking <laughs> you to CBS. So you had, oh my god. You had kind of a... Let me tell you about yeah. he, he and I are still in touch. Yeah. We're still in touch. But Paul Kelly to me was one of the smartest guys in local radio. He could do it all. And and we were a team. And Saturday or not, get up. That's right. If we have to be up, everybody has to be up. Get up. Get up! Get up, get up, get up! Wake up! Get up out of bed! I just love this. You can almost hear the tape moving from reel to reel. The sass and the personality. This was radio, where where every break was memorable. Listen to these references and, and their dynamic. And once in a while, Bobby would slip in something maybe a little risque for LGBTQ plus listeners. You'll hear it soon. That's all right. I couldn't help myself. I still love you. America, a woman tonight before war. (laughs) It's a Saturday morning with Kelly and Rivers, no doubt, as Benson would say. What's on TV right now, the Woody Woodpecker show, the Tom and Jerry Mumbly show, and (laughs) Sylvester and Tweety. All of which are characters which hang out on the east side, but nevertheless, that is still on TV right now. Uh, You don't need it. And we're the radio equivalent to them, so stay with us for the rest of the day. We'll even play a cartoon for you later on, just so you don't think you're missing out on anything. Did you know that the back part of the human tongue is the most sensitive to taste? (laughs) (laughs) You gotta explain that one, Bobby. So you you worked in a little bit of personality into the show. It sounds like I did. You know, yes. And let me tell you, I planned it. Because, okay, I'll, I'll give you another performing secret that I never told anybody. Okay, this is cool. Yes. This is cool with you. Before I ever went in to fill out an application, I listened to the station for about a good couple of weeks and. 
they had a roster of of DJs who each one had his or her distinct personality that really popped. And I really like listened to that. And they were, it was almost like WKRP in Cincinnati. Only I was not Venus Flytrap, even though I'm black. And I went, you know what? I think I could work as a counterpoint because, you know, in those days, if you were like a DJ on an FM rock station, you were hip, you were cool, you were going to get dates. And I went, you know what? I can go in if I could be kind of like a little bit on the dork, nebbishy side, it might be a nice balance. And that's what I did. So I started to work that personality at QFM and it worked well with Paul Kelly. That self-described dorky persona allowed Bobby to sneak a few coded messages in there, little nods to the gay community. Remember, he wasn't exactly out publicly, but he was to his co-workers and people in the gay community knew him because he would go out to bars and such. But he wasn't all the way out on the air. Remember, legal protections weren't guaranteed yet in Wisconsin for LGBTQ people. That wouldn't come until 1982. We talked all about that in season one, episode two of Be Seen when the state legislature created laws to protect LGBTQ plus people at work. So for Bobby to make comments like this at QFM on the air in the seventies, it was daring. It was being seen. I mean, we heard that, that one clip there, but uh, there was another, another line about a pile up on what was it? Astor street. Oh God. Okay. In the community, I think that became not, not famous, but a pair, a lot of guys said, I can't believe you said that, but it was like, a gay secret that Astor Street was kind of like, you know, it was very cruisy. Yes, yes. It was yes. very cruisy. Yes. And I just threw that line in to see if, where are the guys you're listening? And they were. All right, get a load of this line. There was a major pileup last night on Astor Street. Fortunately, no cars were involved. <laughs> uh, that's so good and uh just just perfectly under the radar just perfect right in the pocket perfectly under the radar just delivered it straight yep perfectly under the radar breaking into the business was tough and as glamorous as radio was in the late 70s like today it was not exactly a high-paying profession my first radio boss once said look you'll have a lot of fun but you'll never get rich that's the gig, and I can relate to this in Bobby's early days. Bobby was busy, and on top of it, he was supporting his younger brother, who lived with him. So I had three jobs. You know, I did QFM, and then two or three days a week, I would work in the box office at the Pabst Theater. And then on Saturdays, from 6 to midnight, I worked the counter at a, at a pizza joint near Marquette, thinking, okay, I'll make some money and I could take home a couple extra pizzas. That'll be some food for me and my brother. And then Sundays, I went, okay, I just had this Sunday off to go to church or rest or something. So I had those three jobs. Then my mother moved in a year later. And that's when things got really complicated. She moved to Milwaukee without having arranged for a place to stay, transportation a job or anything. And she brought Bobby's sister along as well. So suddenly it was Bobby, his brother, sister, and mother all crammed into a studio apartment in Milwaukee. And one, honestly, one time I went in back of the building 
to empty the trash, and there was my sister smoking a joint the size of a kayak. <laughs> and she was like, don't judge me. And I went, oh, girl, I understand. <laughs> With the new pressure of providing for his family and sharing an apartment, Bobby knew the three jobs thing just wasn't sustainable. It was time to leave radio. So the main reason that I left WQF, I knew Paul Kelly would be fine solo because he was so talented. But I said, I've got to make money and I need something where people can see me and where I can bring attention to myself. And maybe that attention can bring about some side gigs. After QFM, Bobby applied for a job in TV at WISN 12. The station is still the news leader today in Milwaukee, and at the time, did tons of original programming in addition to the news. One of their shows was a local national hybrid show called PM Magazine. It featured celebrity interviews from the national desk, and local stations like WISN and their hosts, like Bobby, would do local segments with national celebrities in town. And this is where Bobby's career really started to accelerate and break barriers. At the time, WISN realized, you know, there are no black people on weekly TV in major cities who are doing film reviews. That, for like 30 years, was an exclusively white male field. And, but they, they let me, I did it from 79 to 84. So I, was, I, I had... I'm still grateful to PM Magazine, especially those that crew uh, at WISN, because it, it really helped me get started. As a local station, Bobby would do interviews in Milwaukee and submit them to that national desk, where they would decide if it would be carried in other PM Magazine markets. And it wasn't long before he would go national. My first national piece was an interview of Sally Field. I did... The ones that aired nationally were Dolly Parton, uh, Mary Tyler Moore. Then I had one week that really changed my career. One week of PM Magazine was called Oscar Week, and I was on for four of those five days. So I'd, I'd interviewed Meryl Streep for Sophie's Choice, Dustin Hoffman for Tootsie, Jessica Lange for Tootsie, Ben Kingsley for Gandhi, and Richard Attenborough for Gandhi. And Richard Attenborough directed the movie. And all of them got Oscar nominations. My jaw is just dropping here with this with this <laughs> list of names. This is incredible. Um, and that was the turnaround in in my career where I was seeing nationally they're doing celebrity interviews for our pm magazine in milwaukee pm magazine was good to bobby and it wasn't the only show he worked on at wisn there was another a live one with a studio audience called the more show where he got to show off his improv talents with one of the best ever on that show two different interviews of robin williams and i made him laugh and he became like he gave me support. He went, I know you're in Milwaukee, but you're not always going to be there. And Robin Williams was right. After the break, Bobby continues his broadcast journey to New York City. And it wouldn't be the last time he heard from Robin Williams. Keep it here on Be Scene. We'll be right back. 
Hey, Wisconsin foodies. This is Tariq Moody of Radio Milwaukee. Join Milwaukee Magazine's food writer, Ann Christensen, and myself every Friday morning at 8 a.m. for This Bites, Milwaukee's longest-running culinary podcast. We talk about everything from new restaurants, pop-ups, cookbooks, events, and even an occasional interview with the local chef. Head over to RadioMilwaukee.org slash ThisBites or listen anywhere you get your podcasts. We're back on BC in Season 2. At this point in Bobby's career, he was refining his on-air personality and doing appearances everywhere in Milwaukee. In front of the camera, he was a smiling, quick, and clever guy people surely looked up to in Milwaukee. But being the first is never easy. Behind the scenes, as a prominent black and local gay figure, Bobby received his share of hate mail from the audience, and it only made him look harder to leave. The QFM, let's face it, I was the only black person at the on-air staff there. I was the only black person on the PM Magazine staff that was on camera and off camera. And I'll, I'll tell you this honestly, one of the things that accelerated my goal was the racism and homophobia started to wear me down. And I would get racial hate mail at WQFM. It was always anonymous. Just because people are racist doesn't mean they're stupid. So instead of sending me racial hate mail at Channel 12, because it was like, who do you think you are reviewing these movies, you blank, 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 you know, that kind of thing. They say, oh, I'll save the stamp. I'll call the station after hours and just leave the message on his voicemail. So the homophobia thing, I mean, I got a little grief at WQFM. Not a whole lot. Some listeners didn't think I was black because you, you, I didn't quote unquote sound black. And, and there are a couple of times people called up and, and said, why are you playing that nigger music? And I went, oh, Jesus. So, uh, and like I said, I got hate mail with the words nigger and faggot in it. And and swastikas drawn on, and then would have to put up with some of that in person. In person, wow. I never got called the N word as many times in my entire life as when I lived in Milwaukee. By this time, Bobby was fed up with Milwaukee, and can you blame him? He knew his career was destined for more, and at this time at WISN, his show was ending. And he had about six months left on his contract. So he went to talk to station management about his next steps and his ultimate goal of landing in New York City. And while I was there, he said, look, I know your goal is to get to New York. But frankly, I don't have I don't think you have the talent to get there. Well, that was January. I went back to his office in April at the beginning of April and gave immediate notice that I'd be leaving at the end of April, to accept a job offer from WPIX-TV in New York City. Well, that must have been, that must have been uh, pretty rewarding to give that notice. It, you know what? His face cracked. His face looked like the cover of the original Broadway cast album of Follies by Stephen Sondheim. Where, if you could ever look that up on Google, and his, I was just so happy to walk out of his office that day. Leave you, leave you. How could I leave you? How could I go it alone? 
could I wave the years away with a quick goodbye? How do you wipe tears away when your eyes are dry? It was the mid-1980s and Bobby was living his dream. He just landed a new gig in New York City and he got a call from a familiar voice. I got to New York. I'm working at the station. It was a complicated contract, but I was there. And then the surprise was one night about one o'clock in the morning, I got a call from, and this is the truth, Robin Williams. Ran into somebody I knew at a comedy club. She told him about me. And he said, where is he? She said, he's in New York. He went, can you get him on the phone? And he welcomed me to New York. And he said, I knew you would get there. I said, but he kind of had me doing news now. He said, listen to me. Never be afraid to be funny. This will all work out. And I knew you would get there. And Working in news and entertainment, Bobby would continue his career in New York City into the early 2000s. He had arrived. He would work through the news world and eventually landed a gig on VH1, hosting his own celebrity interview show, Watch Bobby Rivers. And he did a bit of acting, too. In fact, on a few episodes of The Sopranos, Bobby appeared as himself on Tony Soprano's TV. Ronald Zellman held a press conference to announce the release of the first 25 million dollars. But the celebrity interviews were always his favorite to do. And he talked to the stars. Meryl Streep. That's not the same that if I had that punchline, I would have jumped at that role, but I didn't. Yeah, I the wasn't. The Sally yeah. Field played a punchline. You would have liked to have done died it. Died to do it. Died to do it. I mean, I have three children. <laughs> I can play that part. Robin Williams, of course. It's Carrie Fisher. His YouTube page is a literal who's who of the time, and it goes on and on. Folks, sit back. You got a ticket to ride a magical mystery tour with myself and Paul McCartney. What a singer. What a songwriter. What a face. Look. Thank you. Oh, yeah. How you doing, Paul? Great. You have this. The cutest, uh, that's uh, the word, the cutest face. I mean, you have this, this boyish, jovial. I love this fellow already. <laughs> you can come back. It's a great, you have such a boyish, great face. Boyish, jovial. Huh? Oh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Four kids. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I'm boyish, jovial. How are the kids? Wonderful. Great. They're good kids. Have they, have they seen, uh, uh, have they seen? But while he was working in New York, his family situation back home wasn't getting any easier. And big chunks of his paychecks would be claimed before he could even spend them. Well, I got to New York and she had quit that job, which meant she had not been making the house payments, which meant she had a foreclosure notice. And I assumed her mortgage. So for the next 15 years, I'm paying my rent and paying on her house. And that expense for 15 years, it caught up with them. You know, when the big recession about two seven, about two eight hit, yeah, um, it was like really broke. I did two consecutive shows that were canceled. I was not, and all of us are saying, we're not getting any work. And I would apply for jobs at like bookstores or restaurants where I used to have side jobs, and they were all closing because of the recession. And it got to the point where, it, and I had, I been in the studio apartment for like 20 years and it started at $900 a month, which was affordable. Then rent skyrocketed when Chelsea became like gay central. And then it, it, it was 
a really working class neighborhood that got gentrified. So the rent jumped up to twenty two hundred a month for a studio apartment, five hundred square foot. I couldn't get any work and I would you know what? I can't afford to stay here anymore. But the Milwaukee house is paid for. I can move in with mom, help her, she's older now, and I could probably find some work in Milwaukee. And then that was the beginning of a stretch of really hard times because my mom wouldn't let me into the house because I'm gay. Wow. So this was the house that you were that you were paying for, but you couldn't Yeah. It was the house that I, I paid for that I couldn't get into. And I'm thinking about all the success that you told us about in your career and, and all these people that were rooting for you and big names. I mean, uh, Robin Williams himself and, and so many others. Yeah. Um, I, I can imagine when you came home, though, to not feel that acceptance. What it, were you it, feeling? That really hurt. Well, it was always, I think, of, of the two people that I wanted to impress the most were my parents. I'll put it like this. My, my mother had my life planned. I was to be a writer who who didn't seek seek the spotlight. I was to be a novelist and maybe or, or teach English in a high school, marry a nice black woman, and have about five kids. And when I did not live the life that she planned for me, she never watched me on TV. I, after I left Milwaukee, never watched me on VH1. After my parents' divorce, I had not seen my dad in like 20, 22 years. He, he left L.A., he was in Canada for a while, and then he went to Seattle and got remarried, and had a couple of new kids, and we, we didn't physically see each other. It wasn't a physically demonstrative type, and I loved to be hugged. So, so that was... That was dad, but then he eventually found me on TV and watched me, and I did a show for ABC. So, with both parents, there is frustration, but it all ended well. This part of the story, it's all too familiar to many in the LGBTQ plus community, especially in the time that we're talking about. Maybe you've experienced this with your parents, maybe not, but if you have, you know exactly what it feels like to mend the relationship and for that responsibility to fall on you, the child. And then you get to this point of civility eventually, but still a tinge of awkwardness, a part of yourself that you can't fully talk about. For Bobby, that acceptance did eventually come, but in a diminished form. I asked him to share more about those final conversations with his dad. Okay, this is... Okay, (laughs) I'm sorry, Bola started crying. This is the one with my dad. Now, my my dad, my cousin called me and he said, everything's okay, but your dad's in the hospital. And Jesus said, yeah, he's recuperating, but I just want to let you know. And it's in Seattle. I said, yeah, it's Seattle. So I went, okay, I got to call him. Now, dad, daddy was not a very chatty guy. If he broke up laughing, it was a wonderful thing. But he was like a big, burly World War II veteran. You know, he had been a, a weightlifter in, in, in his youth. And he was, uh, you know, he was kind of not reclusive, but keep to himself. Mom was the talkative one, but I guess I take from her. 
So for the arts that I love, I had great parents because my my parents loved new movies, old movies, foreign movies. There were all sorts of books in the house that went from Shakespeare, James Baldwin, F. Scott Fitzgerald, to, to like Peyton Place. My parents had some, you know, old records, like 78s. And there was these records by Betty Hutton, which I just assumed were my mom's records. She said, there's your dad's records. I said, dad's records? She said, he was into bebop jazz. She said, he had all these bebop jazz records. And he was also into Betty Hutton. She said, I never understood that. So it was like really funny because then I got into Betty Hutton too. I got dad on the hospital and he was so chatty and energetic. I went, okay, who is this? He was like, hi, hi. And he was, and I, he was so chatty that it made me just like cry with happiness. Cause it was something that I'd wanted. I'd always wanted him to be like that. And you know, it was me and just talk. And he said, he said, I've been watching you on TV. And I went, what? He said, no, I found out that you're on Lifetime Live. I watch you every Friday. Make sure I'm in front of the TV to see your segments. I said, hold. And then he said, hold on. He went, he said, I told one of the nurses that she's in the room. And I can hear her in the background. He said, yeah, I told her you're my son. And she thinks you're really handsome. And she's single. She wants to know when you're going to come. And he, then he put his hand over his foot. He went, don't come. Save yourself which made me laugh. And I went, oh my God, dad made me laugh. Some months later, he, he, he passed, but he had still been watching the, the show. And it just so happened that the last show that I did, one of the segments was, they wanted me to talk about what's new on, on, on DVD. And I said, um, it's been, held up for rights issues for years, but now you can rent or buy the MCM classic Annie Get Your Gun starring Betty Hutton. And I showed a clip of her saying there's no business like show business. And that was the last show Dad saw me do. And then a few weeks later, he passed. And it was, it just, it just touched me that here, you know, he had loved Betty Hutton, and the last thing he saw me do was, I'm talking about Betty Hutton. So I know it may be kind of a corny story, but there's no business like show business. It puts a tear in my eye. There's no business like show business like no. And you made me cry. What are you, Barbara Walters? <laughs> You're making me cry here. We all have tears in our eyes. Boy, show wow. people like show people. They smile when they are low. How I wish the folks at home could only see what's come to Annie and how proud they'd be. Getting paid for doing what comes naturally. Let's go. Oh, 
Well, just such a pleasure to, to speak with you today. And, and thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, your career just sounds incredible. And uh, we're not, we haven't forgot about you here in Milwaukee. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you can really hear the emotion there with Bobby Rivers and the relationship that he had with his parents and that acceptance that he found all too late in life. And I think it's uh, one of the reasons why we're talking about this story and kind of the destructive power of homophobia that you referenced, Michael, in the season preview. You know, those final words and those final moments that children have with their parents, I mean, that will stick with you forever. And Bobby mentioned that his, you know, all these celebrities he talked to and all the success he found in his career, the people he wanted to impress most were his parents, and they had that fundamental block because of, of who, he, who he is as a gay man. I think this episode, perhaps more so than others this season, really ties into that sense of intersectionality of all these different identities, of all these different expectations, all these different cultures that people often have to contend with and, and find balance for. And sometimes we think about this and sometimes we don't, but the burden of that identity and you know the, the it, it comes with a lot of power but it also comes with a lot of responsibility and i think that that is maybe the moral of the bobby river story is you know being first to be seen in the media throughout milwaukee throughout wisconsin and ultimately across the country as a first and a pioneer was not an easy job and continues to not be easy for pioneers today well, we've got a lot more stories to bring you here on Be Seen Season 2. Coming up next week, we're going to be heading to the Milwaukee Pride Parade, which is a long, long-running Milwaukee tradition. And we're exploring kind of two different eras of Milwaukee's Pride Parade. The most current, which is coming up on 20 years. And then we're also going to wind back the clock, Michael, and talk about the very first Pride demonstration, which wasn't exactly a parade like we know it today. It was much more of, of a protest and a radical statement. And we talked to our Be Seen poster child, Michael. And that would be Chucky Betts, formerly of Gay Liberation Front, the Radical Queens, and the New Gay Underground. And we got to spend some time with Chucky on his porch in South Milwaukee. And um, the cover artwork for this podcast is actually at that first demonstration. And that same photo is framed on Chucky's wall in his home. It was really, really cool to meet him and, and to uh, just spend that moment with him to get that side-by-side. -side. So that's coming up in our next episode. Plus, we're going to visit the present-day Milwaukee Pride Parade and talk to folks who are in attendance. So looking forward to bringing you live to the Milwaukee Pride Parade next time on Be Seen. And uh, coming up throughout the season, more of these personal profiles. In fact, coming up on uh, episode three, we'll hear from Donna Burkett. You might not recognize the name Donna Burkett, but she and her partner, Manonia Evans, were actually the first in Wisconsin history to seek a same-sex marriage license in Milwaukee County. Their efforts, their struggles, and their lessons learned are really quite powerful. And almost 60 years later, quite a lesson for us all. And we've got some really incredible audio from University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Libraries, an interview from 2007, where she really documents and steps us through what it felt like and, and what it was like to experience all this attention and pressure in her fight for equality. So Donna Burkett, episode three. We're also heading to the softball diamond later this season to learn about SSBL, which is celebrating its 46th season this year of gay softball in Milwaukee. We'll be live on site there at the diamond later this season. Plus the old timers party, Michael. And what a tradition that was. And sadly, 
I say was, um, as it ended after over 40 years of connecting women from across the region of all ages, all races, and all backgrounds for one very special afternoon party every year. Yeah, if you listened to our first season and enjoyed that story about the M&M Club reunion, uh, this episode six is going to have some of those elements in it as well. We're going to hear from some of the organizers and patrons of the Old Timers Party and remember some of those vibrant, vibrant days of celebration. We're also closing out the series. This is a difficult story to tell. We, uh, we talked about it in our season preview about an unsolved murder going back to 1967. An unsolved murder that has been a cold case since the day it was discovered and involves several high-ranking members of Milwaukee's Gay Society of the 1960s. So we're going to close out the series with that story in, in hopes that it leads to, to some progress on this case, uh, this cold case from 1967. So uh, a really compelling lineup for season two, those personal profiles, these really high profile cases, long running traditions, and so much more in store here for B-Scene season two. Make sure you're subscribed if you were a listener from season one and you're subscribed, you'll get these episodes automatically delivered to you. And if you're new to the feed, make sure you hit subscribe. We'll have new episodes every Tuesday from the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project and Radio Milwaukee. 